Well, our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 19. I'm going to read Psalm 19 for us. Let's give our attention to God's word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning I am really excited to introduce to you my friend Dennis Hermerding. Uh, Dennis and his wife Jane are uh, visiting our family for the weekend. Dennis and I have been uh, friends for many years. We can't really agree on when we first met, but we've been friends for several years. Um, Dennis has been a, uh, like me, an RUF campus minister, like me, a church planter, and Dennis has been the pastor of King's Cross uh, Church in Cypress, Texas, outside of Houston for the last 10 years. So Dennis, we're really excited to have you come and bring God's word to us this morning. Thanks, bro. So it was a real privilege and honor for me to be here. Um, in some ways, I feel like I have known at least a little bit about you because Bryce and I, I think at least three times, we have done sermon series together where we would meet every Thursday, FaceTime, we would study and then come together and use Google Docs and type and write together and mess each other's sermons up and, 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 and tweak outlines, but it's been really awesome. And so uh, in the course of all that, of course, we talk about our different congregations, some of the unique uh, dynamics of San Luis Obispo versus Cypress, Texas, um, but then some of the commonalities because we're all human beings made in God's image. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And so in many ways that unites us no matter where we're from and no matter who we are. And so this morning we get to get to hear from Psalm 19. Um, as we begin, uh, I just want to let you know that C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite writers, um, says this is the greatest poem of the Psalter. That the, there is no better place to go in the Psalter than Psalm 19, according to him. 
Um, and he believed that this was one of the greatest lyrics of the world. One of the things we always have to remember is while we think about the Psalms oftentimes as prayers, they're actually songs, which maybe helps us think about more of our singing as prayers and not just singing, but they're actually things we say back to God. Um, as you look at this, I, I want to kind of set up the tone for it before we get into the text itself to think about Israel itself and why this psalm would be so important for Israel. Um, there are many creation narratives throughout the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2 is obviously one of them, but there are many places that the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, speaks of creation. And even when we get into the New Testament, it's constantly being referred back to. Um, the creation is a very important part of our, how we think about life. And so for Israel, Israel was a land bridge, and so geography matters. And if we think about it, two major roads ran through the nation of Israel, whether you were trying to go from Egypt to conquer, mash, and smash over in Asia, or you were trying to go up and conquer and mash and smash over in, um, in, in, in uh, Europe. Um, and that part of the world, you had to come through Israel. No matter where you were going, you were crossing through this, which meant that this people group was constantly being confronted with ideologies, with gods, with ways of thinking about the world that was contrary to the Lord himself. And so naturally, in order to keep people on point and keep people on track, the Lord continuously reminded them of who they were, where they were from, how they had gotten to the place they were, what was true, what the created order was for, and what it was not. All of that comes into play in this psalm. And I think it's relevant for us because while we may not live in a land bridge, we are more connected in this world than ever. And we are more confronted with ideologies and ways of thinking that is contrary to the scriptures than probably ever before because of globalization, because of technology, because of all these different things, a mobilized society, we are constantly being confronted with things that pull us away from the one true God and the way he has designed us and how he has instructed us in his word. So history is replete with humanity making attempts at deifying themselves, saying we are the center of all, man is the measure of all things. The created order or establishing gods, making gods out of the created order, or creating a God that is so transcendent and other or so imminent and present that he literally has no power to do anything or to confront us with anything. He's either out there doing his own thing or he's just another thing among us. And so he has no real ability to speak to us. One way to look at this is apart from Christianity, the world either becomes a world of astrology or a world of astronomy, and that's it. It's not anything to them in the way that the psalmist looks at the heavens and says, this is what the heavens are doing for us. So strikingly, Psalm 19 addresses the reality that humanity left to themselves and the creation can come no further and will come no further than a belief that there is something larger and grander than themselves. That's what we ultimately end up with. That's why astrology or astronomy or obviously a very insignificant little blip in this vast universe. But then what? And so we need something to help us understand beyond that. So the psalmist will first bring us to the glories and the heights in this psalm of heaven, but in some ways leave us with a dilemma. How can we see the created order as he sees it? He will then point us away from the heavens and their worldless revelation to the great gift he provided through, to his people and through his people for the good of the world, the Bible. And here's something just to think about it. How often do you think about the Bible being a great gift to the world? 
Not just it's something we should read because we're good little Christian people, but it's a gift to the world. The world does not know anything about God without his word. The psalmist doesn't stop with knowledge or interpretation. He moves on to the ultimate destination, which is the human heart. It's not enough for us to say we know about God. It's that God has actually had his way and his will in our hearts. And so the psalmist moves us. And so if we will lean in for a few moments here, we might discover that God offers us through the psalmist a way to recalibrate ourselves, even us who gather frequently in this place to worship God or gather frequently in Cypress, Texas together. It might recalibrate us and help us to rethink how we might think about this world. So there's three things I want to talk about this morning. I think the psalmist helps us to see. One is a visible lesson. That's verses 1 through 6. One is a verbal lesson. And that's verses 7 through 11. And then he goes to the heart. And that's the heart's response. How does the heart respond when confronted with both God's created world and God's word itself? So let's take a few moments to look at that. Um, In verses 1 through 6, we think about the reality that most people, when they look at the created order, they're captivated. And they're prone to respond in some kind of artistic way. There's all kinds of poems written about about the created order, there's all types of songs, there's all types of art. Um, one of my favorite artists, Van Gogh, um, often paints these beautiful landscapes. Uh, and uh, I love Monet as well, and he paints all these beautiful flowers. Um, and so there's just this captivation with creation that all people see. And there's something about that that we should resonate with, I think we do resonate with, because we ourselves are told in Ephesians that we ourselves are God's work of art, God's poem. We are being written by him uh, because of his grace being bestowed upon us. There's something about looking at the created order that should naturally draw out our inner artist. And yes, every single one of you, no matter whether you draw stick people and stick horses or whether you have more skills that can elaborate beauty, um, you have some part of you that has an artistic bent. And so the psalmist begins with something that we universally see and experience. And the grammatical structure of the Hebrew here establishes for the reader or the hearer that the vastness of space, which is the home of the sun, the moon, and the stars, is a revelation of the sovereign majesty of the creator. They display, even in minute form, the radiance and regularity of the created order. And there's a mirrorism here that goes on, and it's, that's a Hebrew technical thing, but it's the idea here of day-to-day and night-to-night, which I know that Bryce soon will be uh, taking you through Genesis, so he'll be talking about chiastic structures and mirrorisms and all those things. Or maybe he won't, but they are there, and, 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 he, and he will at least be drawn to talk about it, even if he doesn't use those terms. But what's, what's really going on here is it's basically saying this, this idea of mirrorism is that day and night demonstrate a completeness and an unfailing surety of God's revelation. The words used here are present and active and continuous, and the language here is actually, if you were to go look in Hebrew, is of a bubbling spring. So when it talks about it pouring forth, it's like a spring that keeps bubbling up without stop, pouring forth that the creation has this ongoing, repeated, never-ending declaration of the glory of God. And for those of us who are believers who look up at the night sky, and I have to tell you that I miss the night sky in Houston because Houston has so many lights. It's such a massive city, uh, much like L.A. When you look up in the skies, there's not much to see but just 
the light from the city. But having lived in Tucson, Arizona, um, I used to lay out on my driveway because they had telescopes, massive telescopes, so all the street lights had to be way dimmed at night. And so the night sky was open even when you lived in the city to, to sight. And so any of us who get out and see the night sky, we can see into the depths of it and we can hear God saying, like if you're familiar with either the book by Dr. Seuss or the more recent movie of Horton Hears a Who, right? God is, creation is saying, he's here, he's here, he's here. If you just have ears to hear and eyes to see. The regularity of the cosmos and the constancy of the seasons show forth the wisdom and creativity of a glorious creator the psalmist is provoked to exclaim with joy and wonder that the heavens and all the earth declare the glory of the Creator, saying the Creator is glorious in his magnitude, having created something so vast and enormous as the universe. He is glorious in engineering, having created something so massive and yet so complex. Whether we're looking through a, a telescope or we're looking through a microscope, the created order is incredible in its sophistication and its complexity, and yet also in its simplicity. He is glorious in his artistry and detailing, having created something with so much diversity of design and color, uniqueness, even things which are alike are still distinct. Even if you look around this room, all of us are human beings made in God's image, but we each have some unique things about us. Even if we're the same ethnicity, we know the difference between one another because there's differences even in the, the sameness. And so this beauty, God's creativity is incredible. He is glorious in his goodness and kindness, having created something for all humanity to see. One of the most critical points is seen in both verse 1 and again in, in verse 4 and in, in through verse 6. It is that while the creation reflects the glory of the creator and can be used to describe his attributes, it is distinct from the creator. Notice that when he talks about the sun, he says the sun has this fixed pattern. He creates the sky like a tent for it. In other words, God is saying against most of the belief system during this time of Israel that the sun is not a god. The sun is a created thing, and it's under God's control. It controls nothing. It's actually under the control of God. And so it creates this creator-creature, this creator-creation distinction, which is replete throughout the scriptures. And one of my uh, favorite lines in all movies is from the movie Rudy. And Rudy was a football player at Notre Dame, or at least he tried to be a football player at Notre Dame. But one of the great things is Rudy's really struggling because he can't get into Notre Dame, and it's his great hope. And he goes to see one of the priests, and the priest says to him this great thing, which I have frequently said to my children and said to students at RUF, and my kids would probably roll their eyes right now because they've heard it so many times. But this is what the priest says to Rudy. He says, Rudy, after 30 years of theological reflection and study, I'm convinced of two things. There is a God, and we're not him. And I think that is one of the greatest lessons that we need to hear over and over and over again, because even as Christians, our tendency is to deify ourselves, our will and our way, and not to believe that God's will and God's way. Think about the Lord's Prayer. We pray frequently, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how often is that really our prayer? How often is our prayer, Lord, my will be done, and you ratify it and make that happen. 
And so we see here that the creation itself actually draws us to see this distinction that God's will and his way will have its way. And then when we find ourselves out of accord with him, we actually are working against the creator of all things. Now, while create, the created order is comprehensible and understandable, we know that Paul in Romans 1, for those of us who have read in the New Testament, picks up the theme of verse 6, of these first six verses, and reminds us of the creation, while it reveals to us the truth so that it leaves us without excuse, saying we didn't know there was a God, it's not enough to tell us the things we really need to know about that God and how to be made right with him. In other words, the book of nature or general revelation is wonderful in all that it can lead and teach us, but it's not sufficient. We need another book. And so the psalmist now turns from that first book, the book of creation, the book of nature, and he turns to that second book, the book of scripture. And so we see a verbal lesson then that he gives us in verses 7 through 11. So in verse 7, the psalmist not only changes the books he is reading, but he actually changes who is revealing and being revealed? Because the wording in Hebrew actually has changed from God to Lord, from El to Yahweh. And it's really important that we see that because El is a very common name. In fact, it's a general name that all the peoples of the earth who had some belief in a God in that area where Israel was, the Canaanites and all that group, all could refer to God as El, much like we in our society will say, well, God, and what exactly do you mean by that? Because people mean all kinds of things when they use that term. So El was a very similar term. It just meant God in general. But Yahweh means a very particular God. The great I am. The covenant keeping. Lover of people. And redeemer of the world. The one who made the promise in Genesis 3.15, right? That I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and, and ultimately that seed will crush the head of that serpent, even while his heel will be bruised. That promise is running through these scriptures, and it's that God that the psalmist now turns to. And he draws us in to see the verbal lesson of God's word. It is the wise person who reads both books. I sometimes have interacted with people who say, you know, I don't read anything else but the Bible. And I go, that's a shame. Because you need to read both books of God's creation. You need to read books about the book of nature and you need to read about the book of scripture. And they both go hand in hand. And you actually are deficient if you only soak yourself in one. You have to soak yourself in both. Both are necessary and needed. But scripture is the one that ultimately helps us to understand the book of nature as God intended it. So each provides insight and understanding for us. General revelation as well as special revelation helps us. General revelation reveals a creator, but it's special revelation that reveals a redeemer. So it's no mistake that when that writer of the Psalms moves from the most general word for God in verses 1 through 6 to the most intimate one, he is actually drawing us in to remember this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. It is Yahweh's word and not his world which shows humanity has a central place in the economy of creation. You would not ever get from the creative world that we were the pinnacle of creation. You have to go to God's word to find that out. Which means that the universe tells you you're small, but God's word says you're significant. How amazing is that? 
that we look at this vastness of space and this intricacy of the microscopic world and somehow at the end of God saying he created all things, he says, you're of most importance. How amazing is that? And how often do we not look at one another and go, do you realize that you are of first importance to the Lord and treat one another in kind? that you are of first importance, you are of significance. How often do we tell ourselves we're not significant and beat ourselves up as we look in the mirror rather than hearing God's word which says you matter. You matter so much I'm willing to die for you. And see, we only get that from the word of the Lord. And that's why we need the scriptures so desperately to speak to us. So as we look at this, verses 7 through 9 are actually telling us about the created, about the character of God's word. We go through this, and if we had more time, I could talk to you a little more about it. But at the end of the day, most commentators tell you, will tell you that it's not so much all these distinct things. It's more the comprehensive whole that the psalmist is trying to get at. He's trying to tell you this comprehensive reality of the word of God is comprehensive in your life. It actually has this ability to shape and form and create in you a new person and a new way of thinking in a new way of operating in the world. That first word that most of our translations translate law is actually the word Torah, which it's a shame that it translates it law, not because that's necessarily a bad translation, but we tend to think about law as commandments rather than Torah, which is all the first five books of the Bible, which is how man is to be saved, not just what makes man guilty. And so we need all of that to be said. And so it's interesting that that's where the psalmist begins. He says that this is Torah. The Torah of the Lord is perfect. Reviving, that word can also mean converting the soul. And so it's this idea of actually changing a person from the inside out. That God's word actually transforms us from the inside out and makes us something new. It converts us to a new way of being. In verse 10, the psalmist draws us into the only logical effect that the grammar of adverbs and nouns and adjectives that have gone on in those verses before it draws us to its natural conclusion. And that is that this word here should be desired. And that word desire is really interesting because that word normally in the Bible is used in a negative way. That word is actually the word that's used about Eve when she desired the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's used of the desire that people had in the Old Testament for like gold when God had put a ban on them getting it. So that word is often used and it's translated lust. They lusted after that and they lusted after this. So think about what the psalmist is saying because he turns it around and he says that the word of God is more to be lusted after than gold. That's almost what the translation would be if you're doing it word for word from the Old Testament. And we tend to think about that term in a negative way, but here the psalmist is trying to draw us and say, your attitude towards the Lord and his word should be this craving, this desire that you will do anything to get. And how often is that how we view the Lord or his word, that I crave it, that it's like honey, and I just want a taste of its sweetness, and I have to have it, and I'll do anything to get it. Oh, that we would be people who lust after the Lord and his word, that we have a craving that we say only he and his word could possibly give me what my heart desires so deeply. 
The word of the Lord not only nourishes and satisfies our souls, it's deep craving, but it heads us off from disaster, which is what the psalmist tells us here, and points us away from destruction toward the holy destiny of life with God. That last part then leads us into the heart's response. The thought of the grand majesty and the intricate beauty of creation and the penetrating powerful scriptures will drive any thoughtful observer to a place of reflection and a desire for renewal, or it will drive them to a place of despair or outright rejection. And isn't this primarily what we see constantly? How often do we see in the world, and it's not by chance that the most confronted religion in the world is Christianity. That often when people talk about rejecting morality, they're not talking about all the other religions which have moral codes. They're most often talking about Christianity and its moral code. They reject it. They don't want to be told how to live or what to do. And we have to be people who recognize that that's something that gets into our hearts as well. I have my heart's desire and the heart wants what the heart wants. I can't tell you how many students I've set across from the University of Arizona and they might have couched it in a thousand different ways. Dennis, you don't understand. You don't know him. You don't know her. You don't understand our circumstances. And I said, the heart wants what the heart wants. But here's where the psalmist turns and helps us to start to think about this because the great enemy of our hearts is sin and sin is in our hearts and we constantly do ourselves a disservice when we allow sin to rule rather than let the Lord have his way and defeating of our sin. It is not others, it is not the government, it is not teachers, it is not even your parents who are your greatest enemy. It's your sin. It's your heart's sin. And we often want to blame something else or someone else or some institution or some system. But the reality is that when it all boils down to it, our sinful hearts do us the greatest damage. And the psalmist feels that weight. The thing that makes me incapable of caring and loving others is my selfish, self-centered, self-doubting, self-inflating heart. That's what does me the worst damage. And the more I can come to terms with that, the more I then see the great value of God's word. And it begins to move me to be honest and truthful and humble and looking towards what only the Lord can get. And the reason why this is so frustrating for us, if you're honest, is because every single person in this room has this deep desire to be loved. And every person in this room, if they're honest, wants to love other people well. And they want to be known because, right, the greatest tragedy in the world is to be fully known and not loved. It's that someone would actually know you completely and say, I don't love what you are. And how tragic is it when that person that says that to you is yourself? See, we desperately need what only the Lord can give us here in this text. We desperately need for God to help us because left to ourselves, we are self-destructive 
and we will harm ourselves as well as others around us, and we long for something to be different. And so the psalmist helps guides us, right? He asks this first question, who can know my heart? Because he recognizes that even he can't fully know his heart. Jeremiah 17, nine through 10 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And the response is, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Lord knows us, but now what will happen? We stand before him as the holy maker of heaven and earth, the creator, but what will happen? Think of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah enters into the temple of the Lord and he sees the train of the Lord flowing down into that temple and the Lord exposes Isaiah to a brief moment of the full glory and holiness that God's presence demands. And Isaiah says what? I am undone, I'm obliterated, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. Who will deliver me? Paul says something similar, right, in Romans 7, when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this bondage of sin and death? So the psalmist asks, who can purify my heart in 12 and 13? And the psalmist addresses two aspects of sin that confront us and sober us, hidden faults and presumptuous sins. Hidden faults are not hidden from others, they're just hidden from us. And that's really, that's terrible. That's just dastardly, isn't it, right? You know, it's, it's always horrible when you're talking to your friend Bryce on the phone and he goes, have you ever realized that you do this, Dennis? Yeah, I'll talk to you later, Bryce, right? It's just, we'll talk later, right? And, and it, it happens the other way too. And it's, it's both beautiful and horrible at the same time, right? Because you have this person that loves you and knows you deeply and cares about you, but they confront you. And how much more so does the Lord do that? And because his deep desire is that you would be made pure, right? The law of the Lord is pure and it's seeking to purify us. And so it also has these ideas of presumptuous sins and it's what I like to call acceptable sins. That's what presumptuous sins are and we have them in our society. They're the things that every, well, everybody does that. I mean, how many times have we heard when dealing with sin, well, we're all sinners. And then what? Because we may all be sinners, but that's not okay. It's not okay to have, there's no such thing as an acceptable sin. There's no such thing as just a little white lie. There's no such thing as just a little bit of adultery. It's like being kind of pregnant. Those things don't work. You either are or you're not. It's either right or it's wrong. And when we come to terms with actually addressing true wrong and true right, it actually sets us free to be delivered and purified in a way that only the Lord can do. And what's really awesome about that is it then makes us be able to love other people no matter what sins they're trapped in because we've realized that our own hearts have been trapped deep and desperately in sin. And the only reason why we have deliverance is because of a gracious, kind, and loving God who has sacrificed himself and stepped into our world in such a meaningful, purposeful way and set us free. And that means we have a deep desire to see other people walking around this community delivered and set free in the same way, not condemned and judged. We know condemnation and judgment is coming, so our deep desire is, would you hear now before it's too late? And see, this morning we need to hear it now. 
before it's too late. The psalmist invites us in, and while he's thinking about temple sacrifices, he knows that those things are going on and on and on, and what he really wants is, I, we need someone who can make me blameless, who can make me innocent of this great transgression, who will make my words and my meditations of my heart acceptable. He longs for a redeemer. What he's ultimately getting at is what Paul will ultimately tell us, what Peter will tell us, what Jesus will ultimately bring to us, is justification. He will actually say that you were like you always obeyed and like you never sinned. How incredible is that, that Christ, because of his work, actually makes our record pure and clean. We place our faith in him. He delivers us completely and fully. Our record is wiped clean. And not only is it wiped clean, because that's kind of cool, but that just means we're back at Adam and Eve in the garden. We want to get past that. And so Christ doesn't just say your record is wiped clean, but I actually give you my record of righteousness full one of my friends used to always say, it's, it's like you've got a, an unlimited credit card of grace. You can't outspend it. That's unbelievable. And not only that, but the Spirit comes and dwells within us to actually enable us to continue to become more and more righteous, more and more gracious, more and more reflecting of what Christ is like, because that's our ultimate desire and goal. We would be more like Jesus. So in conclusion then, Paul makes use of this psalm. The reason why I've kept referring to Paul is because Paul actually makes use of this psalm in Romans. Romans 1, he's clearly reflecting on this psalm when he talks about us being without excuse. But then he jumps to Romans 10 and 12, and he uses it there again. And, and, and he's basically trying to help us understand how what the psalmist is doing here is reflected in what comes in the New Testament. In the first part of the psalm, we saw that the psalmist emphasizes the importance of the sun and its dominant role in the life of creation. In the second part, the psalmist shows the dominant role of Yahweh's word in the life of humanity. As the sun can be a source of comfort and growth and warmth, it can also burn and scorch. So it is with Yahweh's word. For those who stand in the shade of the cross of Jesus' justifying work and are watered by the Spirit's sanctifying work. The revelation of Yahweh leads to growth, intake of life-giving nutrients, and unites us as branches to that tree of life that we see reflected in Psalm 1 and we see reflected in Revelation 22 that brings fruit for the healing of the nations. We're connected to it. But it also, if we reject it, if we don't listen to it, if we don't find safety in the shelter of the shade of the cross, it becomes like a scorching sun that will burn us. So as life on our planet would cease without God's son, so there can be no true lasting life for humanity without Yahweh's word. And here's what I want to leave you with this morning. What if you prayed the prayer of 14? Here's what he says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What if every morning when you got up, you prayed that? And what every night when you went to bed, you said, Lord, make this true and more true tomorrow? What if you prayed that? What if this church prayed that together? What if you were all talking? We want this to be who we are. Lord, would you... Make the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart acceptable in your sight, O rock and our redeemer. How might Trinity change? How might San Luis Obispo change? 
Let's pray that the God of grace would make us this people, a people who look at the created order, seeing his glory, because we've seen his word and seen the glory of Christ, which enables us to see the glory of God in the world, both the world that we see now and the world that is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness and grace. We thank you for this dear congregation. We thank you for these saints who were gathered here. We pray that you would pour out your spirit afresh upon them. Lord, would you bless their heart's desire that this church would flourish and thrive and grow and be a significant part. Would St. Louis Obispo be known for Jesus more than anything else? Partly because the Trinity exists here in this place. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.